The security clearance process is complicated. Maybe you find yourself applying for a position with the national security community and then finding yourself with questions you don't know how to answer. Maybe you've held an active security clearance for decades and now find yourself wondering if you need to report that DUI or if your bankruptcy will be flagged under the new continuous vetting program. Security clearance policies are changing and it can be hard to keep up. Whether you're a security clearance applicant, defense industry hiring manager, or government agency, it's okay to have questions. We have the answers. Welcome to Security Clearance Insecurity on Federal News Radio. Brought to you by your host, Lindy Kaiser of clearancejobs.com and Sean Bigley with security clearance law firm, Bigley Ranish. Hi, this is Lindy Kaiser with clearancejobs.com and welcome to this episode of Security Clearance Insecurity on Federal News Radio. We know that the state of the security clearance process is constantly changing. Jason Miller Pack PMO said earlier this year that this year would be the most significant year for personnel security and vetting reform. We've kind of been tracking that over at clearancejobs.com with all of the Trusted Workforce 2.0 initiatives. The state of security is certainly evolving, it's changing, and we're also coming up a lot of against a lot of workforce issues with a great resignation. On all of that heady note, I'm so thrilled to be talking with Lisa Reedy. She's the VP of security at GDIT, has been with GADIT for a number of years. She's also the chair of the Industrial Security Committee with AIA. And again, has just been working in around this industry for so long, brings a wealth of knowledge has admitted that she does not talk to a lot of people publicly about these topics. So we are glad that she is willing to chat with us. Lisa, thank you so much for being on the show and for chatting with me today. Thank you, Lindy. I really look forward to this opportunity. Thanks. So we recently did an article on clearance jobs and talked about how the total number of clearances is going up. That's just a number that we kind of track over at clearance jobs. Thanks a lot to DCSA's progress improving security clearance vetting times. We're getting more people funneled into this, but the actual in-access population is going down. So we've been a part Part of a lot of conversations and speculation around that. Is it COVID-19? Is it the great resignation? Is it the growing of the workforce? Data cleanup with JPASS to DIS? Kind of talk about the size of the cleared population. Is that something that you look at or consider in your role? Is that a trend that you're seeing? Or do you think there are any factors that play into the size of the cleared workforce today? Lindy, I think it's everything that you mentioned. I think we have definitely been hit by COVID, the great resignation, the green workforce. However, I don't think that the impact is as dire as it's made out to be. And I think that is due to the fact that DCSA has had incredible successes in improving the clearance timelines. Also, there's the Trusted Workforce 2.0 efficiencies. So with these marked improvements to the overall clearance quality and processes, it allows us to move people into access when we need them more efficiently and in a timely manner. And because of this, industry can take advantage of a greater candidate pool by tapping into the uncleared population. For instance, it allows us to take advantage of young people getting out of school who would be willing to wait a couple of months for a job that requires a clearance. Yeah, you bring in the student population. I think that's big. We just published a testimonial this week on clearance jobs from a student who had gotten actually a position through clearance jobs and talked about that process. Maybe can you speak to that kind of this when you're looking at the buckets of where you're bringing in personnel, do you have that flexibility to bring on a, a student and get them cleared? And how is that maybe different from onboarding somebody who already has a clearance? 
Well, it's not just the students who we can onboard from the uncleared population, but in speaking with students, it is really important that we educate them. We go to a lot of different job fairs at colleges, but we educate them on the clearance process. And actually, that is true for anybody who's coming from the uncleared population. I think knowledge is key for them to understand what it takes to go through the process and to be prepared, because as you know, it's a very long application to fill out, helps them be prepared to fill it out correctly, to be able to work through it in a much more efficient and better way. I think that ties into the piece that we talk about at clearance jobs. Sometimes we get a lot of pushback. Do people really want to work in these careers, these national security careers when they can go work for Meta or another commercial sector company? Do you have any thoughts on that? I think working in a job that requires a clearance is kind of, in my opinion, second to none. I've been in it for over 25 years. There's something about the patriotic values, the sense of duty, and the strong feeling of pride you get. However, I realize it may not be for everybody, but I think there's a lot of people who may not realize that they could be part of that. And maybe they look more to the commercial sector because they don't think that they could get a clearance. And there's so many ways to be able to go through the process again and to be able to help them understand what is needed and to be able to go through the clearance process. And given that the clearance now, you can get an interim clearance within a matter of weeks and final clearance, two to three months. So that is very different than we were years ago. Yeah. So talk about the interim piece. Working across the GovCon community on this, I do sometimes get pushback on that because they say, hey, interims are great, but not all of our contracts will allow people to work on interim. Is that the case at GAT as well? Are there certain contracts that you have to have that fully adjudicated clearance before you can put someone on there? Are there contracts that allow folks to work on an interim? And how do you kind of work all that out as a security apparatus to put people in the right places? There definitely are jobs that do require that final clearance. Without a doubt, that is true. However, we do have a fair amount of contracts that you can work on an interim clearance. And as we were talking about before, there is a limit to our current candidate pool. And so what we can do by utilizing the uncleared population, expand that candidate pool. And that allows us to also ensure we are hiring the absolute best candidate, resulting in a more diverse workforce and a variety of ideas and perceptions. And how we do this, we do it by leveraging the successful efforts of the government, as we've been talking about with the processing timelines. And yes, when we have that opportunity to bring in an uncleared individual into a role that requires them to be cleared, we are doing it. And it's good for everybody involved, the customer, the mission, the candidate, and yes, GDIT too. And at GDIT, we believe that having diverse perspectives makes us stronger as an organization. And we believe that employees, hence the missions they support, thrive when a person can bring their whole selves to the workplace every day. And innovation happens when diverse people come together and we want to bring to our customers and communities the very best that we can. So by being able to expand the candidate pool, we are better able to build this diverse workforce and support our customers. Now, when we are working with a candidate who's never received a clearance before, it's important, again, as we talked, that they have a clear understanding of the process, and especially the fact that obtaining a clearance is a review of the whole person. Let me expand on that, if you will. Under the whole person concept, an adjudicator, the government official who's reviewing the security clearance case, will evaluate the individual's eligibility for a security clearance by considering the totality of his or her conduct in all relevant circumstances. Most of the time, no single issue will prevent a person from getting a clearance. Remember, getting a clearance means you're deemed responsible and trustworthy to handle national security information, not that you never have made a mistake. Bottom line, we don't want people opting out just because they don't think they will get a clearance. So if we think that we have found the best person and they are from the uncleared population, we are going to go forward to try to make that work. Again, not all contracts can do this, but we have a fair amount of contracts that do allow for interim clearances and interim clearances can be obtained in a matter of weeks. 
So to me, that's a win-win for everybody. Man, Lisa, I feel like I've met my match with your passion for the security clearance process. <laughs> this is me as well. I so care about this industry and putting the right people into it. I do think that there are people who want to pursue national security careers. I think that that education piece that you hit on is huge. If people understand the opportunities that they will get, the unique workforce that they will get to be a part of, and then realize that piece too, that the security clearance process is not a perfect person process. It is all honestly a process for the persistent and the people who are willing to do it, right? Only there is the education piece of yes, you will have to fill out the 130-ish pages of the SF-86, but it's not as as invasive, I think, as a lot of people think. It's just a lot of paperwork. And I, yeah, I just think that's so key, understanding that if you are willing to put in the effort, this is a great career for you. But yeah, I mean, is GDIT finding success and in, in finding people and getting them through that process with your college outreach or just outreach into uncleared populations? And then, yeah, do you have any maybe tips on the education piece? What takeaways you would want to give to people saying, hey, yes, this is what I wish you knew about this process before you started? Yes. And yes, we are having success in it. I think that that success will continue to grow. It was not very long ago that we were talking about long timelines. So this is still something that is relatively new to us, but we are having success and this is important. We are doing a lot with our outreach. We have a huge intern program that we do every year. We work very hard with our interns to have them learn about the industry and then hope that they'll come back after they finish their college careers. As for the education piece, to me, the more that you can do to explain the process to an individual, and you have to always realize that they really are starting from ground zero, the better off you are. So as you mentioned it, the 130 page form, and you're putting out all of your information and having them feel comfortable that their information isn't being spread around the organization. It is used for the purposes of getting a clearance and given to the government for their investigation, and that they can share with the security officer if they have questions on things, if they want to be able to put information down. And I say, you know, as long as you're not a threat to anybody, it's kind of like talking to your priest. You're saying that information to them. They're not going to go spread it around the organization. It really is there to help them get the paperwork in so that the government can do the investigation and then move forward with the decision and hopefully determine that they're trustworthy and responsible and be able to have a career in this. Yeah. And then definitely look to other resources too. I think for clearance jobs, one of the things that we really love is answering some of those questions. Your security officer is always the best person to talk to if you have a question, but the internet does exist now, which is like, (laughs) remember when you had to fill out an SF-86 pre-internet, pre-Google search? I mean, I feel like that would have been stressful. Now you can go back. Doha publishes all of its cases. I think Doha is a fantastic resource. And we put those in layman's terms over at clearance jobs. So if you're wondering if someone like you, quote unquote, could get a security clearance, there is actually some more information out there that you can find and you can look up cases and you can see what's going on out there and you don't have to have this shroud of mystery or around the security clearance process. And then like you said, your manager and your security officer are different people and the SF-86, you know, what you put into the equip or eventually e-app is not, you know, going directly to your boss. It's going specifically to the government to be a part of this process. And I think that's something that's worth people knowing. So we're kind of talking about misconceptions. Are there any other misconceptions about the clearance process that you think applicants or candidates should know about? Well, I think you kind of touched on one going to talk to Doha. I think that's a great idea be able to have people go and look at some of the other cases. And what they'll see is that one of the greatest mitigators is time. So again, the clearance process is not a pass-fail. So it's looking at that whole person concept. So if there was something that happened in your past, and it's been a long time, and you're a different person, then a lot of times you'll see things like that are mitigated, and that's no longer an issue. So I think that's a great idea to recommend for people to go there who may have some of those concerns, and they can see that how things are mitigated. The other thing is that it comes to 
mental health. I think that is a topic that has been coming up more and more recently. And I can't stress it enough that reporting and getting treatment for mental health is a positive. It's a sign of sound judgment. The U.S. government and companies are putting significant efforts into removing the stigma of mental health treatment and having people realize that it's not about the illness, it's about getting treatment. And you can still hold security clearance, that you just need to make sure you report it, you get the treatment, and then we all move forward in those cases. Yeah, I think clarifying the changes around mental health are big. I know GDIT has had a big push around that. I haven't even had a chance to, to fangirl out my GDIT. I got a GDIT yoga mat, Lisa. Oh, that's I, awesome. I love it. Have you gotten one? I feel like I've I feel like I'm I'm basically a I, yeah, I almost work for the company at this point because I gave I was doing yoga outside with my GDIT yoga mat from a recent event. You really had the wellness push down, and I think that's so important in national security. We're all kind of coming off of this post-COVID, whatever that is, you know, a lot of stress and anxiety and anxiousness. And just knowing that, you know, our employers, they tout the line of belonging or bringing your whole self to work. And some of that is, it's okay not to be okay, right? As GDID would say. And so providing information about that, that also applies to national security workers. We are whole people, a microcosm, have the same problems that other people do. And seeking counseling or proactivity around any issues is always, you know, like you said, in the adjudicative guidelines, one of the biggest mitigators. Okay. Okay, so I can tell that you are a fellow fan of all things security clearance wonky policy. So I have to talk a little bit about Trusted Workforce 2.0 before I let you go because we're kind of pushing the narrative a little bit, but a lot of the undercurrent is taking place behind the scenes. So continuous vetting, though, is fully rolled out. I know there's updates to the kind of investigative guidelines being pushed out and a lot of things happening. Kind of what is your pulse point on Trusted Workforce 2.0 and how you're seeing the impact of it as a security professional? I am a huge fan of Trusted Workforce 2.0. I think it is moving in the right direction. It is obviously going to take time for it to be completely fully rolled out. But the fact that we are having people in continuous evaluation and being able to check on them continuously versus the check every five years or 10 years if you had a secret clearance is a huge step in the right direction. It also, it makes the mobility of people so much easier. Once they're in the trusted vetted workforce, for them to be moving around into other areas is going to be advantageous because that is what it is about. People want mobility. People want to have different job changes. And this is a way for that to be able to happen. Yeah. And I think, like I said, we see the continuous vetting piece. I think it's kind of, it's a lot of it's happening, you know, behind the scenes. So you're seeing, it's not necessarily very transparent to candidates, correct? Like as they are enrolled in continuous vetting, do you think that will shift or is that a part of maybe the Trust Workforce 2.0, the fact that things haven't broken yet, right? Like they've been able to make all of these changes. It's been a pretty seamless process for candidates. Would you agree with that? I would absolutely agree with that. And I think that if it's working well, it's going to stay seamless to candidates. Because in all honesty, you get enrolled into the different feeds of information that are coming in. And if there's no information coming in, there's not much going to come back out for candidates to do. However, if something does hit and there are some questions, the secure officer is made aware who reaches out to the individual, whether it be a candidate or whether it be an individual who's been working for several years and who's enrolled into um, continuous vetting. They ask them the relevant questions, get the facts and submit it to the government for adjudication and for review of it. But again, in most cases, there is no information coming in, which is a positive. And so it is very transparent to the individuals. 
And I think that proactive piece is huge. A key takeaway, anytime I talk to security professionals like yourself, Lisa, you're just fantastic and so nice. So kind of like, why are people scared of their security officers? Maybe because they don't know who they are. But when you actually talk to them, they really, they care about the security of, of the workforce. And I think that proactivity, and it's a positive step. And security professionals are often mitigating worst case scenarios. So if you can give them the positive scenario of, hey, this thing happened and reporting it in advance, because again, especially with continuous vetting, otherwise they're going to find out about it on the other end, having the government contact them and let them know that this alert was was verified. And that certainly is not as great of a look. Well, I feel like we've really come full circle, which is pretty much my interview narrative in all of my conversations. But was there anything else we didn't touch on related to this whole state of the security clearance workforce, the numbers, candidate attraction, or trusted workforce 2.0 that we, that we didn't talk about already, Lisa? I think we hit on just about everything. I just really would encourage someone who would like a job or career dealing with national security to not be intimidated by the fact it might take getting a clearance and to be looking into it. Perfect. I love it. I can talk to you. Our interviews can go super fast, Lisa, because you are a fast talker, just much like myself. So <laughs> thank you so much, Lisa Reedy, GDIT and chair of the Industrial Security Committee at AIA. Thank you so much for joining me on the show today. Thank you, Lindy. It's been a pleasure. Attorney advertisement, not a guarantee or warranty of results. I'm attorney Sean Bigley. The denial or revocation of your security clearance is a devastating blow, but effective legal representation can make a difference. Contact my team at Bigley Ranish LLP for a free case evaluation. Find us online at biglylaw.com. Federal security clearances are all we do. Reach the largest collection of cleared candidates with clearancejobs.com. Peer professionals trust the privacy and security of Clearance Jobs Career Network, along with federal agencies and more than a thousand intelligence and defense contractors. Features like IntelliSearch, Workflow, and Meetings make it easy to build relationships, pipeline, and automate the recruiting process at clearancejobs.com. Welcome back to Security Clearance Insecurity. I am your co-host, Attorney Sean Bigley, and I'm here with Lindy Kaiser of clearancejobs.com. Lindy, we're talking this segment about kind of an odd topic, I think, for a lot of people, marijuana prenups. Is this something that you've come across or heard about previously? Well, the only realm where I've heard it was from you, John, when you wrote about it for clearance jobs. And so I actually, I have heard of the issue of a spouse or significant other or even somebody that someone is considering dating. And kind of, I have heard that use, you know, saying, hey, my spouse or cohabitant uses marijuana, what should I do? Or the other side of it, I've seen a few kind of comments about individuals who are considering dating someone and who have made that a red line for their dating life saying because of their security clearance, they will not date someone who is using marijuana. So I think the nuance behind it is is super interesting. And I'm definitely curious from a legal perspective, how you see it in terms of do you think that's a solid red line to have? Or have you seen cases where an individual has had a spouse or cohabitant who used marijuana and it's affected the individual's security clearance? It's funny because, you know, the, your reaction of, you know, well, <laughs> this, the, this is the first time I've heard about this was from you is, is something that, you know, I've gotten from a few people actually. But oddly enough, it is a thing and it's becoming more and more of a thing. And, you know, you're right. I think we, we've seen this a lot in a, I guess, less official context, if you will, where somebody says, oh, you know, I'm, I'm dating somebody, maybe I'm thinking about getting married, you know, how do I broach this topic if they're a marijuana user? We've seen people where on the discussion boards on clearancejobs.com, for example, where, you know, they've been kind of up in arms about this and said, I'm not going to, 
you know, tell my significant other they can't use marijuana. This is ridiculous. And, you know, everybody has their own opinion on this. Everybody has their own opinion on whether or not marijuana should or shouldn't be legalized. That's, you know, certainly not my place to, you know, make a pronouncement on. But as far as the legal aspect of this here, this is actually something that we're seeing come up uh, with increasing frequency in the last couple of years. Um, I would say prior to about two or three years ago, I had never heard of this either or never even considered it really as a thing. But what we had seen previously and something that I've also written about before is uh, non-disparagement clauses in prenups. And that is something that has been used by celebrities for many years where they get into a relationship, they get married and they sign a prenup that says, you know, hey, if things go south, we're going to both go our separate ways. We're, you know, not necessarily committing that that's going to be amicable, but we are committing that we're not going to trash each other in the media because, you know, one or both of us have reputations that are important and that are valuable. And so this idea of a marijuana prenup is kind of modeled after the same principle where one spouse, for example, has a clearance and says, you know, okay, I love this person. I want to marry them. They're not willing to give up their marijuana for whatever reason, whether it's medicinal, recreational, whatever. How do I handle this? Is there an alternative way to salvage this potential marriage without them either cutting the habit entirely or breaking up? It's an unfortunate situation for some of these folks because there really hasn't been a a solution. And I, I don't want anybody to misinterpret this as, you know, this is a silver bullet solution to the problem. It's not. And as far as I'm aware, this is untested. So we don't know really what the government would do with this. But in theory, at least, if you are in the situation where you're considering getting married and your significant other is a marijuana user, there is potentially a way where you can incorporate provisions into the prenup that would at least be better than nothing. I mean, it's again, it's not a silver bullet, but it's it's potentially a way to mitigate the concerns. Yeah. Talk to me a little bit about the young and the restless in D.C., however, on that very coveted D.C. dating scene, which I do not miss. I have heard this come up with folks saying with the recreational use of marijuana and folks saying, hey, I cannot date someone who is doing drugs. So we kind of talked about the, there's so much legal gray area, but just from a practicality standpoint, do you think if someone's out there and they meet somebody who they think could be the love of their life and they say, you can't do drugs, is that, again, I've seen the side of it, hey, I think they're making excuses. They just don't want to date me. I feel like that's probably not making excuses. They are just being very cognizant of their security clearance and what the policy is and wanting to make sure that they can keep their jobs in the clear. Yeah, I mean, I I agree. On the flip side, I've also seen cases of people who are very indignant over the fact that, you know, whoever they're dating or considering getting into a relationship with is saying that to them. And and their position is, I'm free to use marijuana under, you know, whatever jurisdiction I'm located in. Who are you to tell me that I can't do it? I don't care about what the federal government says. I mean, that's kind of the, the counter side of this. And, and we've we've seen this actually with our some of our clients as well, where they're kind of caught between a rock and a hard place. And they've got, you know, federal government policy on the one hand. And on the other hand, they've got this, you know, significant other, maybe somebody that they're, you know, very serious about considering marrying, who's just adamant in their refusal to stop using. And it, it's a tough situation. So I, I don't envy folks who are in that boat. Uh, let's talk about what this might actually look like. So if somebody's listening to this and they're thinking, all right, you know, maybe this is my solution. Maybe this is a way to thread the needle 
you know, what would actually be in a prenuptial agreement that might theoretically satisfy the government if this ever became an issue. And there's a few pieces to this. You know, number one, obviously, you, the clearance holder, can't be around the marijuana while it's being used. Uh, It shouldn't be stored in your home. You shouldn't be using marital funds uh, to purchase it. Realistically, I understand, you know, that creates a, a, a real headache for folks, but that's kind of the idea. The idea is that this is supposed to be such an inconvenience and, and there's supposed to be such a wall between the clearance holder and the spouse or, or you know, whoever, the you know, significant other who's using that the clearance holder can convincingly say, I am not going to ever be in a situation where I will be tempted to use because I'm not around it. I, my funds aren't being used to buy it, et cetera. I don't practice family law. Anybody who's thinking about doing this needs to talk to a family law attorney and get some help in actually drafting a prenup that would be legally enforceable. But there are some key provisions and folks can take a look at the article that I've written about this on clearance jobs for a little bit further. Lindy, you kind of raise an interesting point with the the young and the restless here. And, and this is an increasing issue, certainly, that that I think is is going to be uh, something that the government is going to be dealing with more and more. I know you get a lot of comments and a lot of feedback from folks in the cleared community on clearance jobs. Are you getting a sense that there's kind of an evolution in the way people are you know, viewing this sort of thing? Or is your sense that most of the folks in the cleared community still understand that, you know, this is a non-starter. I do think most folks in the cleared community understand that. I do feel like at the applicant stage, there's still a ton of confusion about that as you're filling out your SF-86. I feel like I've seen a rise in cases, SF-86s, where people indicate, because that's actually a question on the SF-86. If You know, they ask about prior drug use and also continuing to use drugs. And some people just very falsely assume that if it is quote unquote legal in their state, they can continue to use drugs. And unfortunately, in my experience, ignorance of the law is not usually an excuse in those cases. It's a pretty big hurdle to obtaining a security clearance if you've indicated that you are going to continue using drugs with a security clearance. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, you know, one thing also I think we should mention here is the question that some folks may have, well, how does the government find out if my spouse or significant other is using? Because that's not a question on the SF-86. It's not a question that's typically asked in a background investigation interview. And that's a great question. Most of the time where we see this come up is in the intelligence community agencies where someone undergoes a polygraph and this detail or this information comes out during the course of the polygraph. We also see it on occasion where somebody's undergoing a background investigation, they have a reference get interviewed and the reference just sort of, you know, volunteers this information. Oh yeah, you know, John Smith, he's a great guy, no drug use, but oh by the way, I do know that his spouse uses, you know, those sorts of situations. So, it's not super common that the government uh, finds out if a spouse uses uh, for for you know your run of the mill secret or top secret clearance but it is certainly something that they can ask about if they have reason to do so and anybody taking a polygraph this is something that is sort of dangerous territory so bottom line i mean from my legal perspective i think that anybody who is thinking about getting married to somebody who is using really needs to stop and think about whether that is uh, something they can kind of thread the needle on with perhaps a premarital agreement or you know some other situation where they can kind of create a credible wall between themselves and the use 
if the spouse is not willing to stop using, which is really the ideal scenario. Marijuana prenups coming to a marriage near you. Thank you so much, Sean, for bringing that to our attention. Thank you for listening to this episode of Security Clearance Insecurity. Please note the information provided on this program is intended as general information only and should not be construed as legal advice. Consult a security clearance attorney regarding your specific situation. Have a question about security clearance process? Interested in submitting your own topic for security clearance insecurity? Have a question you'd like us to address on a future episode? Drop us an email, editor at clearancejobs.com. Thank you for tuning in to Security Clearance Insecurity with your host, Lindy Kaiser of clearancejobs.com and Sean Bigley of security clearance law firm, Bigley Ranish. Join us next time as we continue to answer all the questions about security clearance careers you have, but we're too afraid to ask your security manager.